Electric shock. More often than not, electrical installers are working energized. This podcast investigates some of the influences an electrician, contractor, or apprentice may have on their safety decision. Hi, I'm Daniela DeMarco, and this is Electropod, Electrical Federation Canada's podcast series where we explore the electrical industry with industry experts on areas covering the technical and cultural topics that are powering our changing world. My colleague, Gravinder Chopra, joins me as our interviewer sidekick today. Thank you, Daniela. I'm pleased to be your sidekick for the, for the podcast and uh, hello to our listeners. I'm uh, Gravinder Chopra, Vice President of Standards and Regulations for EFC. Electric shock is a serious matter and one that requires further attention as we hear that all too often installers are working energized. Thank you, Gurvinder. Today we have special guests with us from Electrical Safety Authority, also known as ESA, and Technical Safety BC. Kaylin Kutchmer is the leader of Market Insights and Engagement at Technical Safety BC and is a behavioral scientist by training. She is interested in uncovering the root behavioral causes behind some of the technical safety risks and hazards we see within the electrical industry in order to help prevent them from occurring and support strong safety cultures. Robert Mitchell is the Safety and Technical Program Advisor at Electrical Safety Authority, Ontario. Robert is an electrician by trade with over 30 years of experience in the electrical sector and has worked for ESA for 14 years in various capacities. He's passionate about safety and in the role of safety and technique technical program advisor, Robert leads ESA strategic safety programs with a focus on workplace safety and aging infrastructure. Rob is driven by the vision and mission of ESA, which imagines an Ontario free of electrical harms. Welcome Kaylin from Technical Safety BC and Rob from ESA. Thanks Gervinder and thanks Daniela. Happy to be here on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks both of you. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak on this important subject. Thank you both for joining us. From some of the offline conversations we've shared and the research you both have conducted in recent years, I would like to start off with a quote from one of your papers that states, electrical work is evidently dangerous. Electrocution is one of the top six causes of occupational deaths in Canada and the US, according to CSA and the US Department of Health and Human Services. So this leads me to question number one, and I'm directing this one at you, Robert, as it seems to relate to the above quote, we're here to discuss working energized or also known as live, which could be a contributing factor to this statistic. Could you share what working live means to our listeners? So working on energized electrical equipment is exactly as it sounds. It means that you're interacting with a piece of of electrical equipment with exposed energized parts that has electrical power supplied to it. As opposed to working de-energized, which means that you've disconnected the equipment from power and it's in a safe state and has been confirmed to be so. What needs to be understood and is consistent among all standards and regulations is there is a requirement to work on de-energized electrical equipment that is disconnected. Um, We may talk a little further about the requirements of the Canadian Electrical Code and 
by extension the Ontario Electrical Safety Code that says that all equipment should be disconnected prior to interact, interacting with it um, and that it's only when it's not feasible. What needs to be understood is feasibility is a justification and there are very few justifications for working on energized equipment. The primary justification that we should all understand is all electrical equipment is considered energized until it is proven otherwise through verification. So even when you've shut off electrical equipment and put a control in place, we all need to understand that until you've confirmed the effectiveness of your control, you can't be sure that it's de-energized. And that type of testing is energized work. So electricians do this every day, even if they're working properly, because they're confirming the absence of voltage. And you may hear me say that more than once through this conversation. Great, thank you so much, Robert, for explaining that. This leads me to my next question, and it's for both of you. Um, in 2015 and in 2018, your organizations both independently conducted studies looking at the social and behavioral causes of electricians' decisions to work energized. Can you speak to why this research was important? And I'd like to start off with you, Kaylin. Thanks, Daniela. Um, so electric shock is one of the top electrical hazards or risks that we have in our technical risk registry in British Columbia. Um, and that's because electric shock leads to serious incidents of injury and fatality. So it has a significant impact on individuals and it also has the potential to cause damage to electrical systems. Um, so in 2017 and 2018, we really sought to further explore the possible factors um, contributing to electric shock um, and what those were. And one of the main factors that emerged, um, which won't surprise you, was that working on energized equipment often led to cases of electric shock. Um, and that's whether people were knowingly working on energized equipment um, or unknowingly working on energized equipment, uh, which Rob just kind of alluded to in terms of making sure that you're testing to ensure that there is uh, the absence of power. And we'll kind of get into some of the other cases as well uh, where working de-energized may come up. Um, even in 2020, of the 63 reported electrical safety incidents um, in British Columbia, the majority we found were actually related to working on energized equipment. So this is something that continues to happen even today and that we continue to see incidents um, around across British Columbia. Um, and you can see more details in our state of safety report, which is on our website if you're interested. So knowing that working energized is a preventable uh, practice as Rob already mentioned, we really sought to deepen our understanding around some of the socio-cultural and behavioral factors that may actually be at play in um, really influencing the decision-making on whether to work energized. And we have some interesting insights that uh, started to emerge and that we're hoping to share with you and all the listeners today. Um, thank you. Rob, could you share your study with us? So, ESA in undertaking our study, we wanted to acknowledge that there's been a lot of work in this area for, for quite a long time, um, but understanding that much of the work took a sort of a public health approach to 
to the way uh, you looked at these injuries on a sort of macro level. And not unlike what Technical Safety BC has done, we wanted to take uh, acknowledge that work, but also um, take a somewhat more novel approach uh, to understand the behavioral um, and cognitive decision-making factors that occur within the individual, but also within organizations and how, how that informs the decision to either work energized or de-energized. To do that, we build mental models, organizational models, individual models, um, to, to take, do a quantitative analysis and, and assess the influencing factors and determine where the best place to intervene to prevent this behavior. And there's, there's clearly going to be more than one place to intervene. Um, what we found was predictable, I guess, in one way in that the uh, risk tolerance of individuals over time uh, was a clear and contributing factor, either because of you know, the cohort to do with age or because of the complacency uh, issues that you would normally think. Um, but the, there's other aspects about the human factor with regards to um, not wanting to inconvenience people um, that, that really was a significant uh, new understanding for us. Um, and I, I hope that we may get the opportunity to talk about that further as we proceed through this interview. Okay, thank you, Robert for, and Kaylin for your responses on that. Very interesting studies. And um, as we go into the next question, um, I had presented earlier the quote that electrocution is one of the top six causes of occupational deaths in Canada and the US. Could you give some insight to the frequency of electric shock amongst, amongst workers? Can you share a little bit of how often this occurs? Um, Robert, let's uh, start with you. Thank you. Uh, so what, what we understand um, based on the data that's available is that occupational uh, electrical incidents, shock, for instance, uh, primarily, is vastly underreported. The way that we know this is because if we look at the um, reporting of electric shock to regulators and other organizations, insurance, workplace insurance organizations, it it comes in at a certain level. And then if you look at the reporting of electrical admit shock admissions in hospitals, it's at a far higher level and disproportionate. So we know that people are arriving at the hospital with clearly which, what are occupational shock incidents um, that, that aren't being reported through the channels that are required. Um, it should be understood that when a serious electrical incident occurs in Ontario, there is a requirement for reporting and I believe there's a number of jurisdiction, jurisdictions across uh, Canada that have that similar requirement. I, I'll pause there because I'd uh, be happy to hear what Kaylin has to say at this point. Thanks, Rob. Just to back you up on that, reporting is also a requirement um, in British Columbia. And in terms of the, the stats around underreporting here, what we found in our study was that of those electrical workers who had experienced electric shock, only 5% uh, reported that they had actually reported this directly to Technical Safety BC, despite the regulatory requirement. Um, and only 11% reported it directly to WorkSafe BC, which 
um, is the equivalent of the workers comp board here in British Columbia. So really seeing a low degree of reporting despite the regulatory requirements. We also found that over 30% didn't report the incident at all to anyone, um, even if they perceived it to be serious. So um, not even reporting it to other colleagues or even their boss and may not even potentially going in uh, to see their doctor or to see a physician. So to the point around underreporting, we're, we're really seeing that what we um, see in terms of prevalence is probably uh, significantly lower than the true prevalence. I would agree with that, Kaylin. In fact, anecdotally, when I, um, it, when I go and do presentations occasionally at trade schools in Ontario, uh, usually to the basic level apprentices, I ask a question, and the question is this, is in this room, how many of you have worked on energized electrical equipment? Unfortunately, what happens is most of the hands in the room go up. I then ask people to keep their hands up for a moment and, and say, of all of you who have done energized work, how many have had a shock? Those of you who have not had a shock, lower your hand. And unfortunately, to support everything we've been talking about thus far, most of the hands don't go down. And if this is true, and I realize it's an anecdotal observation, it, it completely aligns with what we're saying from the statistics of the hospital visits, and then it gets worse when you consider from the BC safety uh, study that 30% don't report, it becomes clear that all of that is true and very unfortunate. And what we need to understand is this, is every shock has the potential to produce a fatality. So I think that should hopefully resonate with those listening today. Totally agree, Rob. And just to build on that from some of our research, so this was a self-reported study of around 1,200 members of the electrical industry in BC. So they were self-reporting. Um, and we found that 95% of them had experienced electrical shock at work at least once in their career. Um, and that over a third, so 30% of them, actually reported experiencing more than 11 uh, separate electric shock incidents um, at the time of reporting. So this is happening frequently <clears throat> and, um, and across a large population of individuals. In terms of some of the severity, so this was self-reported and perceived uh, severity, we found that about 70% um, of the study population reported having received a shock um, experience or a near miss that caused them to think differently about safety. Um, so obviously something that was significant enough to, to really make them think about whether uh, they would work live or not. And about 51% per, uh, of the population reported um, that they had experienced a severe shock or a near miss. Um, causing either serious damage um, or the potential of fatality, which, as you mentioned, Rob, every shock has, has that potential. Um, and so this is happening significantly um, for a large population, and there is a, a severity as well to it. Interestingly enough, just kind of speaking to the linkage between working energized and experiencing electric shock, 95% of respondents also reported working on energized equipment more than once in their career. 
So really speaking to that correlation between working live or energized and experiencing electric shock incidents. This is definitely uh, occurring more often than what I anticipated. So thank you both for sharing that information and those eye-opening stats. So here, uh, as we go into the next question, um, what did your research tell us about the underlying causes? Were the findings similar or different depending on the province? Kaylin, let's start with you. Thanks, Daniela. So our research actually found some really interesting things. Um, so there was what the members of the electrical community consciously thought was contributing to the risk of electric shock and working energized. Um, and some of those things were around or work practice or complacency. So I think Rob mentioned um, earlier, um, folks working many years in the industry, um, having experienced maybe perceived minor shocks uh, previously and starting to normalize it. So um, not necessarily thinking that it was uh, a big deal and, and that it was just a normal part of work. The second piece was really around relying on others to ensure that equipment is de-energized. Um, and that was something that was really commonly reported. So about 61% of the population that we surveyed reported at least once working on equipment that they thought was de-energized, but in fact ended up being energized. Um, and so that kind of speaks to Rob's point earlier around making sure that you're confirming um, the absence of power before you actually start working on the equipment and not necessarily relying on um, telling your buddy to go turn it off um, because that communication on site can sometimes get lost in the mix when there's multiple things happening. Um, so that was a, a key factor that folks felt was driving um, uh, working energized. The other one was around poor training in electrical safety and risk. So not um, necessarily having the right training or arriving on a site where someone may not have done um, qualified work. And I'll just provide a quote from one of our participants. I've done service work and worked on things that have been set up by someone that's not qualified. And this definitely increases the risk. Um, so making sure that when you are working on equipment that you're properly de-energizing, um, but also making sure that the quality of the installation um, or equipment that you're working on is in, in good shape. And then the final thing that we heard was around faulty testing equipment. So um, folks actually doing testing to, to check to see whether there was um, power and maybe getting a false reading. And sometimes that uh, leading them to actually work on equipment that wasn't fully uh, in a de-energized state. We also found evidence of some more subtle social and cultural influences at play that respondents may not have been consciously aware was actually affecting their decisions and behaviors. And this was a really interesting finding that emerged from our data. So some of those key factors were around market competition. So kind of economic factors, um, forcing a drive to the bottom, um, which is what was uh, kind of quoted by a lot of participants. So basically people trying to um, secure business by having the lowest quote possible, which resulted in them needing to cut corners to save time. So really trying to um, optimize the number of jobs they could do in a day or the cost of the job um, and that kind of leading them to not necessarily follow uh, proper procedure and practice. The other was around perceptions 
related to client or employer pressure to work live. So whether the pressures actually existed or not, um, it was perceived by uh, participants. And I think Rob actually alluded to this early on uh, when he was talking about some of the human factors at play. And so we found that over 40% reported working in an energized state when they didn't want to because they felt they might lose their job, they were gonna add time or cost to a project, or maybe that they were overreacting to um, the potential risk of electric shock. A further 41% said that when they had actually refused to work live, they had experienced negative consequences of refusing unsafe work. Um, so there was the perceived um, inconveniences and potential consequences. And then there was the 40% who actually did experience consequences when they did uh, refuse unsafe work, like getting made fun of by their boss or colleagues, um, getting in trouble with their boss and kind of being on a performance um, management track um, or potentially losing clients as a result of it. So one of the quotes from, um, from one of our participants was this, I refused a job and another guy did it. I can see how it would be hard to say no if you're new. And I think that really speaks to this perceived pressure and the socio-cultural factors surrounding this um, trend and, and practice that's really existing, at least in British Columbia. And I think uh, Rob will speak to it um, from the Ontario's perspective, really, driving people to work live, whether uh, it's their perception or, or the reality. Um, one of the final things that I'll just kind of mention before handing it over to Rob is that uh, another factor that really emerged was around the completion of risk assessments. So actually uh, doing a risk assessment when you go on to site. And that appeared to be quite inconsistent depending on who is actually uh, reporting. Some folks said that they completed a risk assessment every time that they were on site. And those folks tended to be the ones that uh, had stronger perceptions around working de-energized. And we found that in most cases, smaller companies were the ones that uh, we're at a greater risk of not having formal policies around uh, completing those risk assessments. So if you are a smaller company out there, really making sure that you have policies and procedures in place uh, for yourself and employees to complete risk assessments and that it becomes uh, a regular routine part of the job um, seems to be a really important factor in decreasing risk. So I'll hand that over to Rob to share some of his, his findings as well. Thank you, Kaylin. Uh, we, we, we had similar findings in Ontario with regards to that, which really speaks to the complexity of the problem, but maybe uh, feeds the solution because if the solution is common, irrespective of region, it, it may be easier to implement. So when you're in the electrical sector and the electrical trades, you, you are all, we're experiencing the same things whether you're in British Columbia or Ontario. So we had similar findings. And with regards to the human factors and the perceptions that exist in the trade around energized work, um, some of the things we heard in our study were, were, were like, if I'm an electrician, like I should be able to work live, like it's part of my job. And that's, a, that's an unfortunate perception. It's actually not part of the job. What, 
the reason you're an electrician, and I think this is important to say, is you have the ability to identify hazards and control risks. That's why you're an electrician, not because you're willing to accept hazards and work with risk. So that's, a, that's an important part. But the human element that we talked about previous is a very surprising thing. We're all people and we don't want to inconvenience each other. So if somebody asks you not to do something because it's going to cause them some kind of problem or perceived harm, the likelihood is, is that you're going to comply with what their request. I think part of the solution actually um, lies not just with the electrical trades and electrical workers, but engage with those who engage the services of electrical workers and contractors to help them understand what they're asking somebody to do when they ask for energized work. Because as we talked about previously, every shock is a potential fatality. And there's not many occupations where you're asked to put your, like, take your life in your hands just to facilitate completing your work successfully. And I think if we help people who hire electrical contractors understand what they're really asking for, that might have an impact. The other factor that I think is worth discussing at this point as well is, is the impacts of, of electrical contact and shock on a person. There are consequences even when you survive a shock that are, that are chronic and they're physiological and psychological. They have impacts on your cognitive reasoning and how you feel about yourself. Um, and those are long-term impacts of electrical contact, one of which is a feeling of your lesser self. Like you don't feel as important as you might. You don't have as much value for your life as you might because of what's happened to you psychologically as a result of electrical contact. And Kaylin talked to that earlier. And this, in combination with that human factor, really feeds into the reasoning why electricians consistently find themselves in the position of working on energized equipment. And it's one of the things that I think if you implement solutions that include the people that hire services, that you're going to have more impact on how that's done. Kaylin, if uh, you'd like to add to that. Thanks, Rob. I just want to say I really love how you put that. Um, I think that's such an important point. Um, and I think that is definitely the, the key topic of discussion here today is really making sure that we're supporting um, individuals within the electrical industry in feeling like they have the ability to negotiate their own safety on site and to not work energized. And I think We'll kind of get into that a little bit later in the podcast, but if um, people take away nothing, I think this is the most important point for us to remember. So Rob and Kaylin, you have been mentioning about the psychological factors. We know we have these training programs to educate and, and uh, raise the awareness of the contractors. Is there a way that we can do something for raising awareness around psychological factors? Thanks, Gurvinder. I think maybe I can kick us off. I know Rob has lots of thoughts on this one as well. I think the key is that this is a cultural phenomenon. This isn't just something that is existing at the individual level. And so I think in order for us to really support folks and to change this practice and to really shift the 
the conversation and the dial, we need to collectively perceive this as important and talk about it. I think this isn't going to just be ESA and EFC and Technical Safety BC's podcast. This is a industry level discussion. And even wider than that, this is a societal level discussion. As Rob mentioned, um, I think homeowners and owners of uh, companies and um, even industrial sites, everyone needs to be aware of what we're actually asking people to do and what we're accepting. And I think if other people were less accepting of that um, practice, then those in the electrical industry would feel more empowered to say no and would have more value for um, you know, their own health and safety versus what they perceive the um, kind of economic or social uh, benefits to be just in terms of keeping their job and, and fulfilling their role. So yeah, I think this is an industry level discussion and not necessarily an individual level issue. Rob, Rob you have a, want to say something? Yeah, I just thought I'd add to what Caitlin, Caitlin said, because um, I think it's important that, you know, one of the things we look at this problem, because it is cultural and the scope of the problem, um, when you really understand the data that Caitlin's been sharing with us through this conversation, how pervasive it is, is Culturally, we have faced other larger problems such as seat belts and smoking and uh, overcome those. And usually this, those solutions come from leaders in industry who acknowledge that it's a problem and believe it's a problem worth solving and then take action to do something about it. And I think what's important about what's this conversation that EFC is leading today is exactly that. You're a leader in the industry and, and you understand the scope of this problem and it is something that is capable of being solved. And that's the first step in getting this addressed. And with, with organizations like Technical Safety BC and the Electrical Safety Authority, there will be a solution identified that we can, that we can get to. Fantastic. Thanks, Rob. Uh, so before we proceed on to the next question, one quick comment and, uh, and your maybe I would like to seek your thoughts. So risk assessment, as you mentioned, Kaylin, is very crucial. Is there a mandatory element to say that risk assessment has to be in place before a contractor or a technician starts to work? That's my first question related to that. And how robust and inclusive is the template of risk assessment, which may be required to be put in place? Because what I've seen is there are companies who will just have a template on risk assessment. They will just tick mark. And I've seen tick marked on certain things which are not applicable, but still they tick mark because it is a tick mark uh, checklist. On the other hand, some technicians take it very seriously and they will go in detail to fill the risk assessment sheet before they start on doing the work. What are your thoughts on that? Definitely a great question, <clears throat> Gurvinder. And what we found in our research is that there is a wide range of, um, I guess, the level of depth or rigor that people go through in completing a risk assessment. And that tends to vary depending on the sector and industry and then also the size of the company. Um, in terms of your question earlier around whether it's a requirement or not, I think this kind of speaks to the intersection between technical safety requirements and then work safe requirements. So worker safety requirements. 
And I'm actually going to kick it over to Rob because I know he's super familiar in this area and can pro probably provide us with some really concrete insights. Thanks, Kaylin. Um, so I think the interaction of different regulatory requirements for safe, technical safety requirements and occupational safety requirements have to be understood a little differently, perhaps. The integration between technical safety requirements and occupational safety requirements, and I, I speak to uh, my, my colleagues at the Ministry of Labor Training and Skills Development quite frequently on this matter, um, is that if you think about it like this, Technical safety requirements deal with the impacts of incidents on equipment, which has a positive outcome for people. And occupational safety requirements consider the impacts of incidents on people, which has a positive impact on equipment. So we both are concerned similarly about the same thing. Our focuses are slightly different. That said, um, I, I think from a risk assessment, which is what drove this conversation to start with, the solutions that are available um, vary with regards to how well an organization will execute on that. I sit on a couple of uh, CSA standards that deal with workplace safety, and I, one of the things that I'm always focused on is the scalability of these approaches in risk assessment and work planning, because if you have a small organization that may not have the maturity required to fully execute something like you were talking about, Gravender, with regards to, you know, the, they, the, I think the phrase you said is, the technicians really care and they go through it painstakingly and then there's others that do checkboxes. I think that's a, a scalability issue in the application of a work planning process that includes work risk assessment. And that is part of the solution, is bringing a common ground amongst variable si vari various sizes of organizations that allow for them to execute risk assessment effectively, and that will increase their ability to control risk at the same time. So there is a solution in there. Um, I think there's a number of organizations working towards it at this point. Thank you very much, both of you. Let's go on to the next question. Um, did you find a particular area or type of project that could be considered higher risk for installers? Sure, thanks, Gurvinder. Um, so in our research, we did find a few factors that seem to increase the likelihood um, or risk of working live and, and experiencing shock. Um, so there was three factors that we found were statistically significant. The first was primarily working in the single family residential sector. So working um, on single family dwellings. So we found that folks working in that sector primarily, so they might be working in other areas, but majority of their time was spent in, in that particular sector, were three times more likely to be working live. And I think that speaks to some of the, the factors that we talked about earlier. The second was not actually being uh, originally born in Canada, and that increased folks' risk of uh, working live by two times. And finally, working alone was found to increase um, someone's risk by about two times uh, greater than those who are working in a smaller company or for a medium and large size company. So uh, working on your own, uh, not being born in Canada and working mostly in the residential sector where those factors that we found put people at the greatest risk. Thanks, Kevin. Rob, what do you have to say on this? Um, I would add that, you know, I. 
I understand the research at Technical Safety BC has revealed a significant issue within the residential uh, sector in British Columbia. But I always think it's important to level set and say this is a pervasive cultural problem in the industry and 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 understanding where the it's more prevalent will drive where we apply solutions first. Um, and that may vary based on jurisdiction. Um, the Ontario Electrical Safety Report currently identifies that uh, commercial and industrial settings are more prevalent for the likelihood of uh, electrically related fatality. Um, and usually it's work of maintenance and repair where those where those things occur and the commonality that um, supports what we were previously previously discussing is improper procedure is cited as the causal factor in most circumstances um, so although I I fully trust and believe uh, the findings in technical safety BC given the thoroughness of their practice um, I, it it's the solutions may just change focus on where we look first in various jurisdictions. Um, Kaylin, I believe you have something you want to add at that point. Thanks, Rob. And yeah, I totally agree that this is a pervasive problem across industry. So we did look also at the commercial and industrial sectors and again, found an extremely high prevalence of, of shock. I think in the residential sector is where we saw the greatest um, degree of working live. So in terms of, you know, how often people are working live and maybe um, how often they feel like they are uh, receiving received minor uh, effects of electric shock may vary uh, from those more severe incidents that we identify in other sectors. So I think to your point, there is a, a tradition of this happening across all sectors. Um, and I think really trying to understand where it's happening most frequently, and then also where the greatest amount of uh, severity is will also help us identify those initial points of intervention. Um, however, I think, as we've discussed before, this is a, a wider cultural conversation as well. Interestingly enough, I will add that um, the, there is an increasing prevalence of residential incidents uh, in the Ontario Electrical Safety Report um, from the previous year. So it, it could very well be that that becomes the most prevalent in Ontario, which supports your point perfectly, uh, Kaylin. So thank you for that. All right. Thank you both. And uh, some interesting content here for sure to learn from. So as we go on to the next question, uh, from the data and evidence on incidents, what ongoing technical and soft skill training or professional development practices are important for installers and electricians um, to take on? Rob, let's, let's yeah. give this one to you. <laughs> Thank you, Daniela. Um, I think we've already talked uh, quite a great deal about work planning, but I think that that is one of the primary solutions that need to be provided on an ongoing basis to electrical contractors. Standards improve, work therefore work practices should also improve, and I think that one of the things we need to start to help um, electricians and the contract uh, contractor or community with is Ongoing, ongoing improvement, con continuous learning um, with regards to hazard identification, risk assessment, and mitigation. Um, 
And also, how do you protect yourself when you're working? There seems to be an inconsistent understanding of that. And when we think about the largest factor in electrically related fatalities in the workplace, shock is the largest is the largest uh, cause of fatality. It's also the simplest one to protect yourself from in that you turn the power off and the shock incident isn't there and you confirm the absence of voltage. But even the application of PPE while you're confirming the absence of voltage is simple. It's related to the application of gloves and, and barriers that are uh, dielectric. Um, one of the other things that I think would help in educating is, is the um, understanding how to effectively evaluate the condition of electrical equipment and its performance prior to interacting with it. That means things like documentation reviews. The one large one that we haven't necessarily talked about fully, and I perhaps Kaylin wants to add to this, is the ability of those in the electrical trades to communicate. So perhaps there's a need to assist people in the trades to talk about how and why they shouldn't be working on energized equip equipment with their clients and help them understand exactly what their clients are asking them to do. That's uh, Those are difficult negotiations to have with your clients. You have a commercial interest, you're trying to make a dollar and have your business be successful while not offending the people you're working for because they could reasonably just as easily find somebody who isn't going to ask for that conversation. And I will say that I've dealt with this issue uh, when I attend contractor meetings and we have gone so far as to role play that conversation in supporting contractors um, in how they have that um, discussion with their clients. Um, Kaylin, I'm not sure if there's anything else that you'd like to add to that. Thanks, Rob. And I think this is such an important discussion. I think we often <clears throat> underestimate how much value there really is in preparing for those types of conversations because not everyone is confident um, in having that conversation with either their boss or their client. Um, and so I think things like practicing in advance and doing some role playing and really understanding what you want to say in those situations is, is critical. Another uh, suggestion that I've heard from some of the folks in the electrical industry here in BC is that they find it helpful to actually write up a letter that kind of describes some of the rationale for why they need to de-energize equipment before they work live, what the risks are um, and kind of benefits and having that written down because maybe they're not necessarily as comfortable saying it in person and being able to provide that either in advance to their client or actually walk them through it um, and having something kind of concrete to show them has been really helpful in, in them negotiating safety on site. So I think there's a number of different tools and tricks that um, folks can use. And I think it's just around what is your comfort level and how are you gonna have that conversation? Great, thank you both for some great solutions here. Um, as we go into question number seven, um, to expand on communication, I wanna direct this question to Rob and Gurvinder, my sidekick for today. Um, do you think some collaboration between industry associations and regulators could help bridge the gap for electricians to have a greater understanding on how to plan and execute work safety for electrical equipment that is available in the market? So uh, Rob, you might be aware that the Electro Federation has 11 business sections. They are all verticals. And lighting, for example, is one, 
We have uh, electric vehicle as another one, transformers like this. We have 11 sections. The recent one, which we started almost uh, you know, a few months back was field service. Now, the members of this particular section, they undertake service contracts on industrial and distribution equipment, which would have been installed at various locations. And, and Rob, when we are talking about training, measuring effectiveness of training, appropriate risk assessment and cultural change and all that, do you think that the members of this specific section, you know, they, they could have, or they could do something to support what you regulators are trying to achieve, um, making sure that the, the, the technicians who are working are safe? Absolutely, Gravender. I, I think that, you know, there is, aspects of this that will require interactions between individual parties or organizations um, to advance the specific understandings required for different things. I mean, you've started, you've talked about field service, which is a good example, because um, it, it is somewhat, um, it differentiates itself from construction or ongoing industrial kind of installation maintenance type of things. They are, they're not permanent employees, they go from place to place. So they're going to have different needs um, than somebody who's in a construction business. Uh, so that's true. I think that that's a require that needs to happen. And you talked about EV vehicles as well though. Mm -hmm. And that's another complexity and sort of really speaks to the need for continuous improvement and evolution in how we think about these problems. Because as we see what's coming at us with smart grid technologies and micro-generation and storage, that's going to increase the complexity of how we control the issues associated with energized work. Um, so absolutely, these conversations will have to happen directly between regulators and, and various organizations and groups. But what is more important is changing the acceptance of the norm of, of of energized work in the electrical industry. And that requires everybody to speak to one another about it. Um, and it includes regulators. We can only, and I think we've already talked about this, um, but I'll repeat it, is this is a solution that belongs to everybody um, and everybody has to participate in the solution. Regulators have a role to play. Uh, we can't own this. This has to be owned by everybody collectively. Um, because it's a cultural change and we'll only get to a positive cultural change if we collaborate and cooperate and communicate. That's where, where our solution is going to be found. And it is part of it to have one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, events like this one. Um, and it means that safety regulators, pro professionals, manufacturers, um, contractor organizations, everybody, has to get together to solve this problem. So I, I hope that helps with your initial question. And, and uh, Danielle, I hope that helps answer uh, the overall question around partnership in the industry because it's really done through our partnership. And I, 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 I think that although this question was directed to Govinder and myself, I'd be happy to hear from Kaylin on this because I believe Technical Safety BC has some really important insights there. Kaylin. Thanks, Rob. <clears throat> Honestly, you. Put it perfectly. I think uh, your point about this not being owned by the regulators, and this is something that we're trying to achieve, but that this is something that we are all working towards. Fantastic. Excellent. Thank you all for your 
your feedback and comments. So this brings us to our last question for the podcast. If there's any one message listeners can take away from today's discussion, what is it? Caitlin. <laughs> Thanks, Danielle. I feel like I might be a record on repeat right now. Um, so I think at the end of the day, people really do care about safety. Um, so more than 94% of folks that we uh, surveyed actually said that safety was very important to them. But I think what we're finding through our research and some of these discussions um, is that individuals may have difficulty negotiating their own safety when there are social, economic, or cultural forces at play. Um, and that this is ultimately a hazardous industry practice that we all need to uh, change and contribute to in order to keep people safe and healthy. I agree with Kaylin. Um, I guess the message I would add again to be a, also a, a broken record is, uh, is don't work energized. And if you experience an electrical shock, go to the hospital and get treatment because a person can't tell the severity of, of a shock just by how they feel. It is important to get medical attention if you receive a shock. Also ensure that you report it if it is occupational as an occupational event so that people like Kaylin and the Technical Safety, Technical Safety BC and the Electrical Safety Authority and others can look at that data and figure out how we provide a solution. And for electrical workers themselves, I would say the best way to ensure electrical safety is to effectively plan your work, disconnect and control the power, and ensure that the controls that you've put in place are, have been effective by testing for the absence of voltage. And only trust yourself in making those determinations. Great, thank you both. Listeners, you've heard it from our safety authorities here. Thank yes, you. Thank you, Kellen and Rob. To me, this could mean everyone if you're a homeowner, business owner, it is important that you ask the next electrical contractor or inst installer that you hire, what safety protocols need to be followed to keep everyone safe on the job, right? Yes, exactly. And installers have the right to refuse unsafe work as you've heard. Um, so don't feel pressured to work energized. It's just, it's not cool. <laughs> so to learn more about this topic and other technical committees, please visit electrofed.com slash business section. Thank you to our guests for being here today and to Kaylin and Robert. Um, to our listeners, please provide your feedback on this podcast at info at electrofed.com. The studies are available on our website on the podcast page. For you to have access to and Kaylin and Robert have provided additional resources to look through visit our webpage and we hope you continue to plug in thank you for joining us